0: Welcome to the Glasgow Girls Club podcast, where we chat to inspirational folks throughout the city about living their best lives and encourage our listeners to grow and glow.
1: We are live. So welcome all to Keeping Up With Cosmedicare, episode three. This is a series which has been designed to showcase the healthcare treatments and surgical treatments on offer at Cosmedicare for men, women and the transgender community. So tonight we are on with two absolute experts and we are talking all about facial surgery. So I asked in the group a couple of weeks ago if anyone in the community had any questions relating to facial surgery and we got some really great questions in. So Thank you for anyone who took the time to write in and please be reassured no names will be mentioned it's completely anonymous and actually emails get deleted as soon as they come in so that should hopefully put anyone else's mind at rest who's thinking about getting in touch with for future episodes as well. So as I mentioned we're joined by two absolute pros many of you will already know and love Jill Baird. Hello Jill. Hello, Laura. Hello. So, Jill is super active in the GGC community, which is always lovely. But Jill is the managing director of Cosmedicare, and is the one of the only women that I know that's got MBA in her title, Jill thank you i might get rid of that though it's starting to sound a bit oh no no please don't i love it and for anyone who hasn't watched episode one of keeping up with cosmetic care yeah i know that thousands of you actually have from the stats which is amazing but i would recommend that you do because it's a no holds barred chat with jill who is very open and honest and talks about the you know the ups and downs of life the challenges she's faced from being expelled at school to being the first female to found and run a cosmetic surgery brand in Scotland and is now what five weeks away Jill from opening a fully funded state-of-the-art multi-million pound private hospital I know it's crazy it's uh, five weeks it's it's just it's a blink away now it's I can't wait it's so I think I speak for everyone when I say on your cell Jill For sure, for sure. Now, we are also joined, Jill, this is the second time that you've brought a man into our group. Yes. But we do forgive you, we do forgive you, because Dr. Will Anderson, you have got an amazing array of credentials, which I'm actually going to read out, because part of the messaging in this series Mm -hmm. is very much so that regardless of, you know, who you get a treatment from, where you go, make sure you do the research on your surgeon or your aesthetics practitioner make sure you know their qualifications so i'm going to read this out well i'm going to, I'm going to hopefully I'll, I'll get it right and i can read all the words right but let's go from the top right okay will anderson is one of the top consultant plastic reconstructive and aesthetic surgeons in the country a fully trained microvascular surgeon he provides genital perineal reconstruction and is the clinical lead in the laser department at st john's hospital His microvascular skills include providing mastectomy reconstruction, using patients' own tissues, and he performs all aspects of aesthetic breast and body surgery that can help restore patients both physically and psychologically. Like many plastic surgeons, he's also involved in the management and reconstruction of burns, trauma, and skin cancers. Will also provides aesthetic surgery of the breast and body and surgical and non-surgical rejuvenation, and is the lead plastic surgeon for gynecology for the east Coast on your cell well <laughs> so that is quite that is quite the mouthful but it's really important to read it out because it, but, but, it that didn't cover the facial aesthetic hands. surgery that I do either <laughs> <laughs> brilliant okay fantastic right so before we get started I know a lot of you will be, will be looking forward to getting on to these questions a few more things that I want to cover so keeping up with care similar to the glow live is all about bringing you lovely law information entertainment because we always say that knowledge is power as with everything you see in the ggc you know as a consumer exercise your power do your research there's always alternative options so know what your options are and also just to add that this series is part of a carefully curated paid for partnership but we like to see it as win-win advertising because we can actually get all the community involved who want to find out about a topic and they're under no expectation or pressure to make a purchase. So I think I've covered everything off guys. Yep you have. Will we get right tore into the questions then? Tore in, love it. (laughs) Tore in, right okay. So we've got them, they came in with like different areas of the face so I think it's quite good to probably read out the questions like that. So our first question came in and it's about the, the, these questions are about the nose when it comes to nose surgery, what is the extent of what can be done? That was the first question that came in.
2: Where where do we start with that one? Um, The nose is a a key feature of the face obviously and what surgery is required to change a nose to a more desirable nose can range hugely and that, that cuts into kind of reconstructive surgery of the nose which we sometimes have to undertake when there's been cancer resections to you know minor surgery to help refine or change the the appearance of the tip of the nose to more major surgery that can involve you know completely altering the 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 bony and cartilaginous architecture of the nose to to reshape to reshape the nose completely Um, and it's trying to get the expectations of the patient aligned with what you can deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not always the case. And certainly with uh, rhinoplasty surgery, it's well recognized to be one of the one of the operations that we do that that has the highest revision rate. Um, and in terms of satisfaction rate, it certainly doesn't rank highly of all the procedures that we do. And that's that's because inevitably. it's it's an area of the body that you are constantly scrutinizing. Um, And uh, so it can be very challenging surgery indeed. Um, And and every time it needs to be bespoke, the plan of action, getting to know the patient, understanding what their expectations are um, so that hopefully you can deliver uh, so that you get a happy patient and and there's no doubt in, in my mind certainly with aesthetic surgery one of the one of the key endpoints for me is if if you can make somebody happy with the outcome of surgery that that's makes it all worthwhile really oh absolutely,
0: absolutely. What of that as well is um we get a lot of inquiries for rhinoplasty surgery um and when, when will's talking about revision rates and things that's industry-wide it's not as an individual plastic surgeon mm-hmm. um I've spoken about this on previous lives with with Dan and even before Dan as well. There are surgeons that sometimes they just don't do rhinoplasties. Mm-hmm. Um, they might do other aspects of the face. They might do breast. They might do body. Then you get um, MaxFax surgeons that only do the face, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the, the best people for doing a rhinoplasty, because there's lots of different aspects. Like well said about the nose, there's there's the functionality, the breathing aspect which is usually cared for by an ENT surgeon um, and then max facts come in and they get involved in reconstruction and things with that usually if there's been some sort of trauma but the people that, <clears throat> that probably do the most rhinoplasties are plastic surgeons who have decided that they're going to develop their skill set within that area of the face and it's not uncommon to, to have surge- surgeons particularly down in England who only do rhinoplasties they don't do anything else um, so it's really important that you do your research into a surgeon and at any point with any cosmetic surgery, with any surgery at all, if in doubt, don't, just stop because you can revisit another time. It's really, really important to get it right the first time because, as I'm sure Will will tell you, the revisional rate is quite high for rhinoplasty surgeries and the more you go in and mess about surgically in that area of the face, things disintegrate and that's how you see things like Daniela Westbrook, Michael Jackson the celebrities whose noses have distorted into unrecognized abnormal type of, of results. Um, and what's aesthetically pleasing to one person isn't necessarily the same as another person. So yeah. when we're looking at selection, I tend to, to, my first point of call, when someone submits images and things, as a first and foremost, if we can't see anything that we can improve, we try and discourage that patient from doing anything at all or look at surgical options which Will's in a really fortunate position that he can do both he can do surgical and non-surgical so he's able to advise the patients independently of what might be the best option for them
1: brilliant because that actually was one of the the questions um that came in in relation to surgical versus non-surgical so would you recommend going down the dermal filler route first to smooth out a witch-like bump in my nose before taking a plunge and going for a nose job? How would the results differ between the two?
2: There's, there's a limitation to what can be achieved with, certainly with non-surgical um, uh, um, abnormalities on the nose. Uh, and, and fillers are a very good way of trying to address those. And sometimes they can be very effective. Um, and sometimes it can be actually very long lasting. Uh, uh, One of the advantages of certainly the fillers that I would tend to use, which is the hyaluronic acid fillers, is that they don't last forever. And if they aren't quite as we would like them, they they can be dissolved with uh, an enzyme, albeit the enzyme uh, can create an allergic reaction uh, in in a very small number of people. Uh, So for minor abnormalities, it can be an alternative. It can be a realistic alternative to open surgery uh, and it also can be a useful adjunct for minor imperfections post surgically um, but it, it's certainly not a substitute for the majority of people that are desiring you know nose altering surgery because it just will not achieve the results that they're hoping for
0: yeah and on that as well um obviously you said i'm really active within the glasgow girls club i'm, I'm a glasgow girl myself I love supporting other women in business and i I see lots of people offering rhinoplasty filler and things like that as well and francis francis turner trail we we do a lot of work with francis she's excellent at non-surgical rhinoplasty as well um but i think when it gets around this area of the face the vascular construction of the face and things makes it really important that you get someone who knows exactly what they're doing um things can go very wrong very very quickly around this particular part of your face
2: um,
0: that is and very true. Can dissolve things, but you can have reactions to that as well. So it's really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With your research and you go to someone who does this regularly, and yes. I,
1: if they're medically qualified, that's really where you want to be going. Okay, brilliant. Okay. Next question then, I've hated the bump in the bridge of my nose for 40 years. I'm ready to make a change, but I'm terrified of doing anything that will make it look worse than I think it is at the moment. Is there any way to see a visual of how my nose shape will likely be after the procedure? And how long is recovery, please?
2: Well, um, at Cosmetica we've got a three-dimensional photographic imaging system, something called Chrysalix. Um, and Jill is a bit of a whiz at uh, uh, using it, we use it for a whole variety of different indications, including uh, changes to breasts, for instance, but it can also be used for manipulating images for rhinoplasty uh, work uh, to give an impression of what the post operative results might look like. Um, so that can be quite helpful. Um, and, you know, there's no substitute for coming and having a consultation and getting the opinion of uh, um, a rhinoplasty surgery, surgeon so that uh, they can give you a realistic ex- expectation of what the recovery is going to be like. because it, it may differ depending on what's what's required. Okay,
0: that makes sense. One, one of the things that differs in our patient pathway for rhinoplasty patients as opposed to other surgeries as I've spoken before about how we do telephone consultations first and foremost via um, images sent to the surgeons for them to to give patients advice on what's potentially available to them what their options are that's always followed by a face-to-face consultation and these are about half hour each um but with rhinoplasty patients we get them back for a further consultation mm-hmm. and our cooling off period um pre-covid was always longer for the rhinoplasty patients than it was for other patients which is usually the cooling off period that's recommended by the gmc and a lot of the governing bodies is two weeks okay. but with Classes, we really encourage people to take a lot longer thinking about it. Um, one of the things the guys do in consultation, they use the crystallics, but they also sit with a mirror with the patient, looking at the whole aspect of the face and they, they draw things. It's quite an in-depth consultation. And that really comes back to why communication is the key point between a patient and a surgeon about expectations and what's realistically achievable.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, brilliant, next question. I am a female in a man's body. Is there anything that can be done to make my nose look more feminine as part of my gender transformation journey?
2: Well, I think that's certainly likely to be the case um, and it will depend on how masculine the nose is to start with, Um, but uh, there are certain features that can be more feminine and certainly rhinoplasty surgery can be tailored to make the nose look more feminine, um, obviously that's not always a desirable outcome of male rhinoplasty. But certainly in this um, uh, group, it, it, you know, it, there's no doubt it can it can be uh, uh, undertaken to make the nose more refined, more petite, uh, less prominent um, um, dorsum of the nose um, to make it look uh, more feminine. Okay, brilliant. Brilliant.
1: Okay. Uh, And this is the, this is the final question with relation to nose. So I went, I underwent a nose job a few years back when I lived in England, but honestly I have never been satisfied with the results and was too scared to see at the time. I think my nose looks unnatural. Is there anything your team can do appreciate you would need to see it, but thought I would ask first.
2: Absolutely right. We would need to see her. Mm
1: Um,
2: to see what what the situation is Um, but um, as we said earlier on uh, you know revisional surgery is never as straightforward as the primary surgery so getting a primary surgery to try and meet your expectations is the key but um, you know there may be things that can be done.
0: Okay well Well, if anyone is thinking about this and they're googling things it's known as revisional surgery it doesn't necessarily mean that you're having a revision with the original surgeon it's just of an initial result, um, and it can also be known as secondary surgery as well, um, so if you are looking for that, you're looking for someone who does these and who does them regularly, you don't want someone who does maybe not enough a lot of rhinoplasties trying to do a revision of a previous rhinoplasty that's complex, that's just asking for trouble.
1: Yes, that is definite, definitely asking for trouble, right, okay, brilliant, okay, so we're going to move on to ears. So the first question is, my boyfriend has the worst cauliflower ears from rugby. Is there anything that can be done?
2: <laughs> I wonder if the boyfriend is worried about his ears.
1: I know he Probably might not, not know this question question's being su- posed, su- but we're I all excited. Like to answer. I
2: suspect it's a badge of honour you know, <laughs> <laughs> amongst rugby players and MMA fighters. But there are things that can be done. Clearly it's best to be left until the rugby career is uh, finished. Uh, but essentially, cauliflower ears are the result of recurrent trauma to the ears. And what happens is when the ear, and you see it with the MMA fighters as well, when the ears get traumatized, what can happen is you can get bleeding that occurs just under the uh, layer that covers the cartilage of the ear, and that uh, produces a very painful blood swelling. Um, and uh, it's the pain subsides, but... That ultimately, that blood can be uh, uh, can leave a permanent um, distortion and a lump. It uh, can even become calcified, mm. and you can get um, this uh, uh, cauliflower ear deformity. And there are things that can be done. Uh, uh, certainly, um, the skin can be very carefully lifted off from the underlying cartilage and the, and the areas that are producing these deformities, and 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 the ear can be. Uh, Almost carved back to its uh, original shape before the skins carefully laid back again. So yes, there, there are potential surgical options to to, to help. Um, it is a preventable uh, um, deformity. Um, if if when you get a very painful blood swelling on the ear, if it is drained at the same time, uh, you will generally avoid the cauliflower deformity. But it's not something that's readily done amongst rugby players and oh. fighters.
0: We seem to not like going to hospitals unless they absolutely no. have.
1: Yes. Yeah. That. Do you know what? That's so interesting because I've always wondered about cauliflower ears. How does it happen? Yeah, yeah. How does it happen? And is there any going back after it? So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. We've had yeah. play, like what well, we're seeing as well the MMA fighters
0: a few quite famous ones as well. Um, And they're the nicest, nicest, sweetest guys. Their girlfriends tend to bring them to to Medicare and they've literally had their pulled so far of their head and you think, that must have been so, so painful.
1: But they're just strong, strong guys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was a really interesting one. Okay, next question. My ears are big and stick out. My nickname was Dumbo, if that paints a picture. What types of surgery can be done to help a girl with ears that have eroded her confidence over the years?
2: Oh, there's everything that can be done. Um, she, she is not alone. Um, and it's amazing just how certain facial features, ears, uh, noses, uh, can, can erode your self-confidence. Um, and Children are absolutely ruthless when it comes to teasing at school. Um, the shape of the ears is, is predominantly um, dictated by the cartilage and how it's shaped, how it's folded, how it projects from the side of the head. So any surgery that we do uh, uh, to correct prominent ears it is directed at trying to reshape the cartilage and help to pull that cartilage back further against the side of the head to try and give a natural looking ear that doesn't look as if it had an operation, but is much less prominent. Um, And that can be tailored and it's it's very much, again, a bespoke operation. Um, And whilst we use similar techniques for many otoplasties, sometimes we need to employ techniques to very carefully resect a section of cartilage to allow the ear to come back. We can use sutures into the cartilage to help accentuate folds. We can use sutures to recess the the bowl of the ear back against the side of the head. Um, All of these things are, are techniques that can be used. Um, There's a more commercial device called an ear fold, which people may have read about, which is almost like a a staple that tries to fold the cartilage where you want it to fold, but it's a very one-dimensional type approach um, to ear correction, and I I don't tend to use that. Um, And uh, essentially, it's tailoring the, the surgery to exactly what the deformity is and how flexible the ear is, how Nicely, it will fold and, and change shape with um, uh, with sutures and, and with with uh, uh, recessing it against the side of the head, and it can be done under local anaesthetic. You know, it takes about between one and two hours um, to do that.
0: Okay. The the, the pinoplasty well does a lot of pinoplasties. Well, and two other of our surgeons do a lot of pinoplasties, and again, it's one of those ones where it's really about managing expectations because. What I've found of managing patients through these processes like is like the girl said, she's got trauma from childhood and people see things and they usually won't wear their hair up because they don't want anyone to see anything. So when you initially get this surgery done, your ears are literally pinned back to your head, like something from, from Star Trek, so you can't see yeah. your ears. As they heal, they, they will retract back out again. Um, and I think a lot of people really panic that they're going to regress right back to... To where they come from and it takes a wee bit of time for that to settle. Um but what you really well what I try and do and I know that well and the surgeons do this in and, and consultation as well is really manage the expectation of what an, a normal ear projection looks like. Yeah. I mean you put people in saying there's a difference between the two ears and there's literally two millimeters. So if you take a set if you take a ruler and measure the two millimeters, the people have been through so much trauma and they're so self-conscious about their ears that they're measuring to the millimeter it's like your boobs your face is never perfectly symmetrical you're never going to get exact symmetry so again it's one of those things you really need to think about what you're doing before you do it and be able to commit to the aftercare because the aftercare is really really important with with the panoplastic
1: procedures okay and that's really interesting it's local anesthetic you would not need to potentially
2: some people run a mile it doesn't anesthetize your hearing so you do oh yeah hear things going on but uh, usually there's chat and the radio playing Uh, it's usually a fairly um calming environment
1: yeah Yeah. and and with the the um noise that we were doing before would that be general anesthetic just in case anyone's watching and wondering (laughs) okay Mm
0: -hmm. okay
1: right brilliant so the next question is my daughter has those loop things and her earlobes which stretch them she asked me the other day what she should do if she was to take them out. And then I seen this programme promo post and thought I would ask, can you help?
2: Yes, we can certainly help. And we do quite a number of these, what we call tribal uh, piercings um, with the stretches that have elongated the uh, the lobe. Often it re- often it actually generates more lobe tissue than, than there was before. Um, so it's certainly possible to essentially remove that, hoop of earlobe and uh, reconstruct uh, a more reasonable and natural looking earlobe there's inevitably some scarring at the site of the surgery but it can restore a much more normal looking ear Um, and again that's something that lends itself to being done on the local anesthetic it takes perhaps an hour to do uh, two sides Um, you know there are Small risks with all these operations we've been talking about, and and certainly for the ear, one of the uh, one of the small but unpredictable risks is is for scars to misbehave and become overactive, and you can get a condition called keloid scarring where the, the scar really goes into overdrive, and you get a, a very large lump of scar potentially forming. And the ears is one of these sites that has pre- a predilection for that. It's still only about one in a hundred people, mm-hmm. um, so it is pretty rare. But if it does happen, it can be a real nuisance because it can require additional treatments um, sometimes even further surgery mm-hmm. but it can be very difficult to get it to settle itself down and um, that's something always to bear in mind but uh, no uh, again tribal earlobe repair is you know and again it's a bespoke operation you you you, you work with what the deformity is to restore normality essentially yeah
1: because some of them are small aren't they but some of them you see them in their masks yeah yeah
2: absolutely yeah So yeah.
0: no, on that yeah. stage Whilst we're talking about ear lobes, um, there was another thing, and I don't think anybody's asked it. It might be because of the age demographic of uh, the people that are in the group. But we do another form of lobe surgery as well, which is lobe reduction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time as people get older and you tend to see it more in males, the lobe stretches and their their ear looks Mm -hmm. as if it's really the lobe that has elongated. Mm -hmm. That's Um, a
2: sign of wisdom. yes (laughs)
0: Change. yes <laughs> that often
2: unfortunately my earlobes are very small I think <laughs>
0: um, and the other thing that I don't think anybody asked but whilst we're on the the topic of pearsons mm-hmm. had experience with a patient everything stays um confidential but we had a lady who traveled quite some distance because she'd had those um pearsons put in your ear That's like the stars I can't remember what it's called but it's like um, the formation of the stars, you have it pierced into your ears. Okay. Lovely young woman, um, she'd had these piercings in a professional set in a sterile environment, she'd done everything right, and she took her reaction to them and cysts grew, Ouch. completely deformed her ear. We found she, she was in a newspaper and somebody commented and said, "Oh, because Medicare might be able to help you. So we did it as part of our Cause Medicare trust, and Will was her operating surgeon. Um, but there are things that can be done and a lot of people, they, they won't come forward because they think if it hasn't been offered in the NHS, that it's potentially there's nothing that can be done. It's not available. That's not always the case. Yeah. So worthwhile for people to know that that's an option, whether they want to pursue that down the NHS or look at it privately. There are mm. options as well.
2: Yeah, was keloid, keloid scarring that lady had, mm-hmm. which can occur at piercing sites. Um, yeah. We see quite a number of patients, both on the National Health Service. and. Certainly, in cosmetic. Yeah, some too.
1: Well, that's really interesting and good to know that you know. There, you might as well ask the question. Yeah, just yeah. ask if anything can be done if there's something that's it's affecting you. Right. Okay. Brilliant. So the last question on ears: Are you left with scarring on your face if you get a procedure done on your ears? Where's this? Where's the scarring? And what's what's like the recovery time for?
2: Well, my my typical post-operative management would be for for a full ear correction i would tend to put a very well applied padded dressing and a bandage around the head um, to help uh, cushion the ears and that stays on for between five and seven days um uh, most people will uh want to be working from home or not not be going into the office during that time and the same is true if if it's children and, and they, they tend to take the week off school um, we then bring you back because i tend to use a suture that runs underneath the skin that we snip and it just slides out about a week later um, so that i'm not leaving much in the way of suture material in the scar itself which is which is tucked away uh, behind the ear um, okay. in an effort to try not to stimulate any additional scarring than, mm-hmm. than uh, an absolute minimal response because what we don't want to do is, is try and encourage this keloid scar formation. Um, now, uh, after the bandages are removed in a week and the sutures is removed, there may be a little bit of bruising. The ears are often a little bit sensitive. Uh, we tend to recommend using a kind of broad, comfortable uh, headband to, to go around the ears at nighttime, just to protect them a little bit from the pillow. Uh, but uh, no dressings are required during the day. Uh, it's a good idea to avoid strenuous activity, gym work, hanging upside down you know anything too vigorous certainly for (laughs) maybe maybe two or three weeks anyway afterwards (laughs) and and certainly avoid you know contact sports rugby judo things that are going to potentially traumatize the ear because if the ear gets pulled or traumatized during that initial three months post-operatively there's a a good chance that um, the sutures that are helping to anchor and hold the ear where we want it could give way and and then end up to uh, giving rise to recurrence
1: okay okay well thank you very much for that um right next up onto eyes so this question that came more of a statement i have saggy eyelids help
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so <laughs> what what could be done for something like that then
2: well all sorts of things and actually you know the eyes are one of those areas that's uh uh sometimes in advance of the rest of the face in terms of the aging process and with more and more people now um online like we are just now people are becoming a mu- much more aware of their their facial appearance and mm-hmm. being less discontented um but what's what's important to establish is exactly what the underlying problem is um it's important to know that, the, uh, that there isn't an underlying eye problem or a problem with the actual mechanics of the eyelid function in terms of what we call a true ptosis or what we call eyelid droop so if the eyelid actually droops down and starts to come down over the pupil that's a very different condition to the more common problem of what we call blepharochalasis, where there's a redundancy in excess of the skin of the upper eyelid particularly and that's very common and that's much more easy to treat um, uh ptosis surgery where the eyelid, the eyelid has truly drooped that that requires a specialist that tends to do uh, ptosis surgery um but uh the the upper eyelids are the most common uh, uh target for for surgical rejuvenation um within the face and um you know it's about very carefully tailoring removing the skin that's redundant it's also vitally important that you do assess the patient very carefully because there are other things that can influence the uh the appearance of the upper eyelid and that in particular includes the 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 brow itself Mm -hmm. um and we sometimes see this when there's been over exuberant botox and neurotoxins used uh, because if the elevators of the brow are are allowing the brow to droop down then the upper eyelid can start to, to be a bit more crowded Um, and can make it look a bit more uh, conspicuous and hooded Uh, but um, it's it's usually the eyelid itself that's that's the main issue and it's one that's pretty straightforward to sort out if done carefully but like all things there are small risks associated with surgery upper eyelid surgery is very um, readily done under local anaesthetic in fact Um, it's day case surgery uh, but there are some small risks Infection rates with eyelid surgery are very low. Um, We're very meticulous to sort any bleeding. uh, um, And and usually there's virtually no blood loss at the time of the surgery itself. Uh, But um, we have to be very meticulous and careful with management of any of the little fat pockets that are around the eye, because what we don't want to do is um, get any bleeding around the eye in the post-operative period, because that can be an issue because it can press on the eye. It can compromise the circulation to the eye, and in very rare circumstances, it can even lead to visual loss. So these are these are risks that we counsel everybody about. Um, yeah. Thankfully, they're extremely rare. Uh, but you know, it's a cliche: you have to go in with your eyes open uh, uh, when um, when we're when we're talking about these sorts of operations. And Jill was mentioning earlier about uh, injections uh, for the nose and for around the eye area this is a this is a real minefield uh, uh with the number of people with pretty much no qualifications injecting fillers around the facial areas um often with sharp needles um, because if it's inadvertently injected into into the vascular system it can end up leading to to, to blindness to tissue necrosis to scarring um So, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of talk about that in the media recently, about um, regulation. Yeah,
0: one of the, um, I've had upper eyelid surgery, I've had it a couple of years ago with my own team. Um, I did a video diary that's in facial group, one of the private facial groups. Um, But one of the things that people usually ask us is, what age can you start looking at this from? So I'm 30 now, I think I had it when I was about 35, Um, but we do see people younger we do see people a lot older Um, one of the things that that Will would talk to you about in consultation or any of the surgeons would talk to you about in consultation is what other non-surgical treatments have you had Um, the current trend is this fox eye thing so a lot of the guys just wouldn't recommend having um, upper eyelid surgery within a certain time frame of having the, the fox eye lift or under eye filler or botox because they want to see the natural position of the eye before they get in there and start operating on it. Yeah. Um, in the past, so maybe fib a wee bit about when the last had Botox, but it's really important that you tell your surgeon the truth, even yep. if that surgery a wee bit, because ultimately you're spending a lot of money. You only want to do this once. And you want to get the best outcome the first time.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely, hundred percent.
2: Certainly, fillers around the eye can endure for an awful long time. Sometimes, I mean, we we tend to suggest that fillers may last for a year or possibly two but you know there are um, certainly well documented cases of filler lasting over a decade in certain parts of the face and and sometimes it can cause you know grumbling problems with with uh, you know some soft tissue swelling fluid fluid, uh, swelling Um, and it's because a lot of people injecting fillers are injecting very big volumes Whereas often you don't need big volumes to make um, appreciable changes.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Remind me to come back to um, another service that, that Will offers and most plastic surgeons will offer fat transfer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any
1: questions about it, but it is an alternative to filler. Right, okay. I'm going to note that down. Okay. Right. That's really interesting. And again, just heart... It's
2: fantastic, by the way. The fat I think. I think fat well, transfer has got so many applications within aesthetic and reconstructive surgery. surgery. Tell we us you now. Well, we use it in reconstructive breast surgery. It can be used to provide breast augmentation. It can be, we use, I use it almost uh, as, a, as a, a standard as part of facial rejuvenation surgery. Uh, because part of the aging process and the aging process is a complex one. It doesn't just affect your skin, it affects all the tissue layers. And as we get older, uh, some of the characteristic uh, features are you you tend to deflate, you know, your your, your soft tissue volume, particularly in the mid-midfacial, mid facial mid facial area, you know, tends to kind of become more sunken and that makes the eye bags more conspicuous. Now, if you can restore that volume with your own tissues. Um, it's a really helpful thing in terms of adding to the rejuvenative process, because with facelifting surgery, um, you know the the area that's least affected by facelifting surgery tends to be the the, 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 the central face. Um, it can really be very helpful for the jowls and the neck and uh, and things, but um, you know fat transfer has really come into its own with with helping to restore uh, youthful volume to the to the mid face. And the oh. other thing that is, is good with with fat transfer is that uh, fat tissue is actually quite a a, a a potent resource for stem cells, which um, are kind of rejuvenative in their own right. So they could be quite um, a helpful addition um, to, to, to to many, uh, be it uh, lower eyelid surgery or uh, face uh, face lifting surgery um uh, I've used uh, uh, doing some fat transfer today for helping to restore better contour to a cheek in a, an unfortunate um, lady that had really very severe acne uh, with, with very indented and depressed scars on her cheeks so we were helping to release those scars from where they're kind of bound down and and then um, really filling in with a, a thin layer of, of um, fat transfer and helping to restore some volume to hopefully give her a bit much better smoother cheek
1: we never have thought like that, that was even possible so so where um, whereabouts in the face then could could fetch? because it could could it go anywhere in this kind of middle
2: but then oh you, you you can put fat anywhere it can it can help rejuvenate for hollow for hollowing of the temples it can be fabulous for restoring volume to the mid face um it can be used for very hollow upper eyelids or the brow area um you know it, it you, know, you can use it for lip volume um it's it can be used around the nasolabial creases to help improve those and also to restore you know cheek cheek volume and accentuate um the malar prominence of the cheekbones yeah you know so it's it's um it's pretty versatile
0: Laura me and you have spoken about this. I'm not going to lower the tone in this one because we're talking about faces, but there is another area that fat transfer can be used for.
1: I'm sure I'll get Will back on to talk about that. <laughs> interesting. Who knew? This is so This is so interesting, guys. Right, okay. So next question up then. can your So you might have actually answered this well. Can your brows drop to give you saggy eyelids?
2: Oh, yes. Yes. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and it's part of the natural you know gravity is the enemy uh with the aging process in all respects um and you know we talk about the face going from a uh, a, a triangle with its point at the at the a triangle in that direction it, it then becomes a triangle in that direction um with everything going down and, and the gels forming but but certainly the brows uh can drop um and they can certainly have an influence on the upper eyelids Um, and there are ways to try and restore a better height to the brow Uh, and and in fact probably a reflection of the challenge that it is is that there are several hundred different described techniques for lifting the brow Um, and uh, ultimately sometimes the the most straightforward ones are the best and direct brow lifting where you actually remove some skin from uh, just immediately above the brow itself to help lift the brow, it often has the most direct effect, but it's, it's at the expense of a little fine scar that runs just along the top edge of your eyebrow. Um, but there are many other techniques, including trying to use um, uh, sutures to help um, uh, hitch up the eyebrow through incisions in the in the hairline, for instance. Um, but uh, endoscopic brow lifting, where you use cameras through some little incisions further up in the hair, was very popular in the in the 90s and the early 2000s, and it's very much uh, uh, um, dropped off in terms of popularity uh, because the the effects are not necessarily that enduring. Yeah. Um, but there's lo- lots of lots of different techniques.
0: Well, what would you say your your opinion is on thread lifts? Because I know that usually when people are talking about lifting the face in these yeah. areas, we mentioned those fox lifts. We don't offer that
2: sort yeah. Certain- yeah. So, listen, thread lifts are quite interesting, and it's not something I have done or have been trained in. You know, the, the, the technology for these types of thread have been around since the early 80s, in fact. But it was only in the kind of nineties and early two thousands that that uh, you know the actual physical threads that grip tissues were actually used for trying to you know re- recite and lift facial tissues. Um, you know, again, it's been a focus in the media very recently that you know you know people are going on a one day course and then trying to lift uh, you know doing a non-surgical facelift and you think, how on earth do these people have any idea about facial anatomy or what important structures they're right next to? Um, certainly my feeling is whilst I haven't uh, um, been doing any silhouette soft or any other th- thread thread lifts, I have seen patients that have had them. Um, they're often quite disappointed with the duration. Uh, uh, of benefit and I have actually seen a number of patients that have had you know problems from them including facial scarring um, that have required you know surgical revision and uh, so it's something to to bear in mind.
0: One of the reasons I I speak about this I'm again like I've tried different things I've I've tried liposuction to this area before that I had done the Silhouette soft deadlifts and I had it with a plastic really experienced plastic surgeon who used to be part of my team and it was done in conjunction with one of the trainers who's one of the lead people in the UK for doing these I had three threads put on each side if I was paying for that it would have been thousands of pounds I seen an initial result maybe lasted about three months and then nothing it just all seemed to collapse back down again um and I was young I was young at the time I was in my early 30s so I should have been an ideal candidate
2: still young you're still young
0: kind will yes, still young 100 <laughs> no so it's really interesting because when when you get something into your head and for me it was this bit in my, in my, in my jowls and I'd, i've spoken to laura about this before and it bothered me because I've, I've been a weight loss patient and things like that before so you start trying all these non-surgical things i've done silhouette soft that didn't work i did face and neck type that was a wee bit better for anybody that tells you that's a non-invasive no downtime procedure no um again, thousands of pounds. We don't offer that, so read into it as you will. I considered having liposuction and um Renuvion, which is probably the next thing that I will try before a facelift. But of my guys at Cosmedicare, none of them will offer me a facelift. And I'm quite persistent.
1: I can imagine, Joe. <laughs> yeah, none of it,
0: none of them are doing it. So you really need to question if you're going and you're paying for a consultation somewhere, our consultations are free of charge, but that's beside the point. If you're going and you're really not at that stage where a facelift is going to be of benefit to you and give you the longevity, seriously think about not doing it because where we've seen facelifts go wrong in the past and other people, and we were on the Kay Adams show about it a couple of years ago and with a very lovely lady who'd went to a a great non-surgical clinic, in the city that had a surgeon coming in and doing these if there's not enough for them to take away it can effectively burst open and if that bursts open all those scars are ripping right down here
1: and it can be it can be a disaster yeah oh yes be careful 100% a uh,
2: good you to- can get repeat facelifts though. you can don't forget that so whilst whilst I wouldn't typically see patients seeking facelift surgery until they're well into their forties, um, or, or sometimes a lot older. Uh, facelift results can actually be very, very powerful in the, in that slightly younger age group. Um, you know, the forty plus. You know, generally wouldn't um, wouldn't be considering facelifting surgery at Jill's tender age. Uh, but. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, and the effects from a facelift are long lasting. They don't halt the aging process, though. So that the process of aging will continue. And there are, we know there are so many factors that, that play into that aging process, which include, you know, your genetics. And some people are very lucky and some are some aren't. But, you know, being careful with sunshine exposure, you know, avoiding cigarettes, you know, these are all, crucial things eating well with a good diet you know all of these things are good general um measures to just try and ward off the aging process
1: yeah absolutely okay brilliant so the next question guys is can Medicare advise on types of brow lift surgery techniques etc done with forehead lowering Also, can they advise on hair transplant technique for eyebrows replacement? I have none, not that I overdid them. I was literally never blessed with any. So we do have um, a hair transplant specialist who treats males and
0: females. Um, He's a very popular provider across a lot of different age groups. So males and females. Um, Something a lot of women don't talk about is even from an early age, their hairline can start receding back. So whereas usually, Yeah, you'll see people like Wayne Rooney going for hair transplants and things. It's actually quite common amongst the female population as well. Um, You can also get a treatment called PRP, which encourages stem cell growth of the hair um, for restoration. And that tends to be quite popular amongst people who don't have such bad hair loss um, or have maybe been through other medical treatments that have impacted on their hair growth. So the hair transplant, um, that's the first thing. It can can lower the hairline um which wasn't the question but it is potentially a solution to the the problem that that person's having Um that can also be applicable to the eyebrows so the exact same way in which the the hair is um taken from the donor side at the back and implanted into the eyebrow is the same as how it would be implanted into other aspects of the the the, the head really um in terms of the brow lifts that's really Will's area because there's so many options
2: yeah for... as we were alluding to earlier on yes. there are. Many, many different techniques, and uh you know it's a case of coming to get an assessment and discuss what might be the most appropriate option. Forehead that individual
0: something else that probably be able to to give a better answer to. It it is a possibility. Um it's quite complex surgery. It's not a it's not a very popular request.
2: Um I missed that, Jill. What was that you were talking about?
0: Forehead. Uh
2: Uh-huh.
0: So lowering of the hairline,
2: Yeah.
0: for me that tends to be more from, from our trans community um, and they tend to come seeking that as part of a facial feminization package, um, similar to what your, your previous uh, trans patient had asked about the facial feminization of the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different options available for facial feminization um, and lots of different demographics of society. Some of it is, is usually factored into the NHS um, transitioning pathway. So it's worthwhile looking at that. Um, and similarly, as Will was talking about facial fat transfer, that can be a really good way of feminizing the face through volume. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these things are really worth looking at. If you are looking at a, a gender reassignment, transitional program, looking at what com- what procedures can be combined at the same time and what is going to give you the maximum benefit for the overall aesthetic appearance instead of looking at your face as just one area that you're concerned about, look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times the inverted filter on Instagram is, is one of the things that I say to people, what you see is not necessarily what other people see. So you will scrutinize yourself beyond belief, whether it's acne scarring or your ears, or I do it with my skin, I've had eczema my whole life. And well, I'll tell you when I'm nervous, I pick at this ear something awful. I, I I've got this running joke that the hospital's called cost me an arm and leg and half an ear because I've I've been so stressed. I keep picking at it. People don't always see the same as what what you're seeing, so it's really it's really helpful to get honest input from friends and family members. Yeah, and friend and family member, what I would say to people is be constructively honest. There's no point saying to your your child or your friend or your partner, "Oh no, no you're being daft." There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. If that is something that's mentally and in terms of confidence affecting someone and it is something that you can see it's okay to say that but say it in a constructive way that's supportive opposed to a negative way that's a critique of somebody's appearance because
1: nobody likes that so that's not helpful to anyone yeah we do it to ourselves enough don't we that's the thing yeah okay brilliant okay so this is the last question on the eyes and guys and then we're moving on to face if that's okay so Eyes, I have bags under my eyes, which never seem to go away. They're worse when I'm tired. My friend told me there are facial surgery options available for this. Can you tell me what they are and also what the expected outcome is after the procedure?
2: Again, definitely. Um, And lower eyelid surgery is a very popularly requested uh, intervention. Um, It would be called a lower lid blepharoplasty and how that's performed uh, can vary. There are again, a number of different techniques it's all about tailoring what's done to what is required to get the outcome that, that is desired. Um, but um, with the lower eyelids, and, and she mentioned kind of eye bags and, and tiredness, what tends to happen is that the um, uh, as the aging process progresses, um, a number of factors, the loss of fat underneath the eye can accentuate that lower eyelid tear trough the, the supporting tissues that help to retain the um, uh, little fat pads that sit underneath the eye, they can often become a little bit slack and the the, the eye pads uh, bulge forward and that's what producing the actual eye bag. Um, so surgery is designed to, to help carefully reduce those eye bags, uh, to tighten the tissues, as I say, oftentimes we will help restore volume to the face with fat transfer at the same time. Um, and uh, you know, I tend to prefer doing my lower eyelid surgery under a, uh, a full anaesthetic rather than the local anaesthetic. But it can be done under local anaesthetic even, um, and, uh, and it's often very well tolerated. Um, but uh, again, it's 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 about you know assessing the patient, understanding their expectations, and see tailoring what what's done to 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 meet those. Um, and as, a, as I say, there's a number of different techniques okay. and again, a number of risks uh, associated with surgery too, as Absolutely. we mentioned before.
0: Another thing that I would add on to that, um, we, we get some people come to us and they think they need lower blepharoplasty because of the darkness under their eyes. Um, first and foremost, and it sounds, it's never what anybody wants to hear, but water intake can cause that and lack of sleep and stress, and particularly in people that have got stressful jobs or they've got kids and things as well. So it's always worthwhile looking at that first and foremost. Then um, within the the Asian demographic, we tend to have particularly Asian men come in thinking that they need a lower blepharoplasty because of the darkness under the eye. And that's not really what's needed. That can be treated with non-surgical options um, and can help with that. So it's worthwhile really seeking out advice from People who are informed on all aspects of what's available to you so that you get the right solution to you and don't automatically jump into a surgical option.
2: You know, and sometimes alternative approaches can be very effective um, for, for the eyelids uh, um, that can include, you know, fat transfer, also laser tightening of the skin can be really useful um in the right in the right patient. And that you know that can affect and improve you know, sun damage, sunspots, wrinkles, complexion, issues, yeah. uh, and, and it can be a very helpful rejuvenative intervention in its own right.
0: We should uh, probably mention the laser a bit more. Um, as Laura said in the introduction, well was one of the laser leads um, at St. John's, um, I think he is the laser lead. Um, mm-hmm. He's our at Cosmedia here, um, and also at St. Ellen's as we, as we go into the hospital as well. And I think we made all wells' Christmases at once when we gave him a CO two sinner Candela laser, which is like the best laser available in the market. I mean, his eyes lit up when he's seen that. It's
2: a very <laughs> good <laughs> laser. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> definitely some good that I was like handed the guy a keys Ferrari. He was delighted. <laughs> he's he's very well versed in integrating that into treatment care options and trying to avoid people needing surgery in the first place.
1: Yeah. Okay, that's. Nice. That sounds—it's really interesting. It's—it's it's amazing the breadth of stuff that can be done surgically and non-surgically. It really, it really is. Mm. Okay, so we're moving on to our final section. This was a really interesting question, actually, because I think probably every single person that watched this show thought <laughs> the same. Can we talk about the Friends reunion? Have all the girls had facelifts? Uh, on your
2: can you tell? That was the question. I saw that question. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, the important thing is um, if you've had a very good and well executed and carefully planned facial rejuvenation procedure, you really shouldn't be able to see very readily whether or not they've had surgery. Mm -hmm. Problems arise if there are some of the telltale stigmata of of a facelift that hasn't been perhaps as well executed, perhaps the earlobe has been uh, distorted slightly uh, maybe there's undue tension on the skin and the scars have stretched, um, but uh, there's no doubt, a facelift does require scars, but we try and put those scars in the most inconspicuous locations and, and hide them at the hairline just around the around the sideburn area and, and just down um, around the ear and into the hair at the back for a full face and neck lift, um, and they often settle extremely well. Um, so so if the, if they're looking too good at the reunion, they probably have had something done. Uh, but you may not be able to tell.
0: So my opinion on this, mm-hmm. and I, something that I've spoken about quite a lot, I actually watched a, a celebrity blogger talking about this the other day, was what in today's society right now is perceived as a surgical intervention. So I mentioned earlier on that I'd had face and neck type Mm-hmm. that is been described as a non-surgical alternative to a facelift but let me tell you I will share this video of me having that procedure I can mm-hmm. assure surgical procedure one of my surgeons took his jacket off and came in and sat down and held my hand I nearly had a heart attack on the table it was not good it was not a good experience which is why we do not offer it the cannula, which is a rod about that length, sometimes longer, is inserted and it goes down like this. So it's down so close to your jugular that you're scared to breathe. And that was under local anesthetic. No station, nothing.
2: You, you're I, not selling it, Jill. You're not selling I'm
0: not, it. <laughs> the, reason, the reason that some people take that option, particularly celebrities, is so that when they're asked a direct question by the media, or if they're gonna promote beauty products such as um, natural skincare creams that give them the look that they've had, they can hand and heart, straight face, that's not moving, say that they have a facelift. So technically, they have not had a facelift, but if you look at what they have actually had done, it's usually a procedure to tighten this area and then they've had laser resurfacing or they've had fat fat transfer. If you think back to Kim Kardashian saying that her bum was her own, yes, it, it is her own, it's her own fat. It's been taken from every other part of her body. So it is her own, but it has been a surgical procedure that's got to that. That's what a cast of
1: friends have done, including the men, not just the women. So do you think the men have done it as well then?
2: Well, I, I was looking at Tom Cruise sitting at Wimbledon and I thought, Mm. <laughs> I thought to admit I didn't get a very good look, but I think he's had some fat transfer recently.
1: Yes. Oh, that's do you guys like look like obviously be knowing the signs and you must look at celebs and just be like, uh huh uh huh. You must just know. Celebs, other Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> <laughs> you can just tell. You can just tell, right, okay. That is that's really interesting to know, and interesting to know if it's non surgical, somebody could say not had but okay. Right, next question. When would you recommend a facelift over another aesthetic procedure like fillers and Botox?
2: It's all down to the individual and, you know, how advanced the ageing process is, um, what their concerns are. Uh, certainly, a lot of these non, non-surgical non or less invasive procedures can, can make Significant improvements that will delay the requirements for a facelift, but once you start to get more significant jowl formation um, and and neck problems, you know it, it's limited what what the non-surgical uh, approaches can can really do.
1: And that happens that happens
2: at very different ages for different people, and and for other reasons, Jill mentioned weight loss these sorts of things. And certainly, you know, massive weight loss can be an issue for people because it can be quite aging, uh, an aging um, uh, situation, you know, when your facial fat deflates, and you've got some redundant skin. And uh, you know, that that can mean that you might might benefit from from facial rejuvenation and face lifting surgery at a much earlier point.
0: My viewpoint on it is slightly controversial and I know that any surgeons watching this they, they might not like the answer including Will so he'll close his ears to this one. I think a female who like most females is interested in how they look and how they look has an impact on how they feel that's all fine and well but these things cost money as well and I think when you get to a point where you're making interventions non-surgically whether it be filler the initial cost of those fillers so you can you can get what's called liquid facelifts where it's eight point lifts and those can run into thousands of pounds if you're spending that kind of money and then you've got that constant upkeep when you I think that's when you really need to start thinking as well about making a call what is what's the longevity that I'm getting out of this and what is the risk versus the benefit so yes look at it from a surgical point of view and safety and longevity and what's suitable for you as well but I think we'd be in complete denial if we didn't say the cost comes into this as well. So don't throw your money down a stank trying to get an outcome that you're only going to get from a surgical procedure.
1: Okay, okay. Right, next question. What if you get a facelift and it's cracking, but then you're left with a saggy neck, so your neck gives the game away, what then?
2: Well, I think, again, that's down to planning and, and selection of the most appropriate procedure. Um, and you know if if you've got redundancy in the neck you really do need to have uh, a more extensive face and neck lifting procedure if you're going to uh, get a satisfactory outcome Mm -hmm. Um, some people have a very good neck and maybe some jowling and and a a more short scar approach limited approach facelift may be great Uh, but if there's significant changes in the neck then a full face neck lift is probably what's needed and, and what should be done in that circumstance. Yeah
0: I think it's also whilst we've got well here to be able to distinguish what your neck is and that sounds like a really stupid thing to say but we often get people come to us and they're saying they want a face and neck lift for this wee bit here they're classing this as part of their neck that's not what I would class as part of someone's neck I would class this as part of someone's neck and even like down to kind of here so it's really important to know about what aspects of your face you're want to change and that's why a consultation is really really important so that the surgeons can see you and feel it as well because it's not just about the visual it's about the elasticity of the skin so you might think you need something but you actually don't
2: and certainly the neck can be one of the most challenging areas certainly with lifting procedures because the further you are away from where the lift is actually taking place. Uh, So in a facelift procedure, that's all very peripheral. You know, the mid the middle of the face and the central neck that then becomes the bit that's furthest away from where you're trying to lift. So it can be very challenging to get uh, really great results. Okay. oh,
1: very very interesting stuff. So that this next question is maybe you've touched upon that already. Well, could you explain the various different types of lifts and what they involve? What, and what's the kind of mm-hmm. what's it kind yes. Of as well?
2: Bro- b- broadly speaking, um, you yeah, know, like I alluded to with brow lifts, there are literally hundreds of described techniques for facelifting surgery. Um, ultimately, the principles are. Uh, uh very similar. You're trying to um, have very well concealed, uh, uh, almost invisible uh, scars for the access. Um, whilst you are tightening the skin, the most important uh, element of the tightening is actually at a deeper level. It's at what we call the SMAS layer, um, which um, is, is, is a supportive layer within the face and neck that allows you to tighten and lift the tissues. Uh, in a more enduring way, so that you're not actually doing the facelift with the skin, you know, the old style windswept look where where the skin's pulled so tight that, uh, uh, you know, like you're in a wind tunnel. So, you know, the the, the actual name of the technique is not necessarily important. It's, it's just the knowledge that you have to address these tissues in a respectful way, and you have to be Doing something to help lift and tighten this deeper layer of what we call the SMAS, and there's different ways to manipulate it and use it to help tighten the neck or to lift the jaw and the face. Um, uh, you could perhaps categorise it in being a you know a full face neck lift where the scars extend right around the ear and into the hairline at the back. That would be your classic uh, full face neck lift. Um, There are techniques where the neck is not such an issue, you can do what's called a short scar facelift where the scar is hidden in the in the um, hairline at the front and uh, around the ear, but not into the hairline at the back. Um, And that can allow you to access the facial tissues and the SMAS tissues to help lift um, the jowl area and, and rejuvenate and again trying to employ other techniques can be really useful to help rejuvenate the mid face be that laser resurfacing, be that chemical peeling, be that um, the addition of fat transfer, uh, all of these things really, they all complement uh, complement them, uh, each other.
0: As a consumer, Laura, you, you've probably seen like different influencers go to different places and different celebrities. I won't mention anyone, you probably know who I'm talking about because she's been in the papers recently um, about having yet another face left. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a trend. There used to be a trend of people going to Turkey to get their boobs done. Now there seems to be a trend of people going to England to get a certain type of um, trademarked facelift. So a couple of surgeons down there have come up come up with some ideas on how they can do facelifts with less downtime and things like that. And I've spoken before about how different facilities require different types of licenses, whether it's a clinic license, um, a surgical centre license, or a hospital license. And those impact the types of procedures that you can deliver within those settings. So some surgeons have started um, adapting their techniques to meet the criteria to be able to deliver them in those settings. And then that allows them to offer it at a price point because obviously they don't need an anesthetist, they're not needing scrub nurses, they don't need pathology. There's lots of different things that they don't need to do so they can reduce the cost of those types of things. So probably just since before COVID started, more and more people were coming to cause Medicare and going, oh, but I can jump down to York or whatever. And there's this guy on Instagram and he's doing faceless for three and a half thousand pounds. That to me is crazy because obviously I know the financials that go on behind this. It's part of my business to know what that is. So I know what the surgeon's fees are, I know what the anaesthetist fees are, how much it costs to run a theater, what the kit costs. You physically can't do it for that price. Mm-hmm. So corners are being cut to give those facelifts. And it tends to be that the patient goes down, Um, it's a local anaesthetic procedure, takes yeah. them about two hours. They're really just taking away the skin. They're not doing anything to the tissues underneath, similar to what Will's explained. They're not yeah. doing anything to the band that structures the face and all different aspects there. But people don't know the difference. So they're comparing apples and oranges when they're, they're trying to look at procedures against each other so it's really really important that you don't jump into things and really look at what you're getting because it might look great initially and a lot of them do like i've had friends i've had people that i know really really well go and do that but how long that's going to last whether it's going to look like that in
1: five to ten years is completely different okay that is again it just all hails back to just doing your research, doesn't it? And just knowing exactly what yeah. it is that you're you're going in for. It helps
0: want a short scar facelift with fat transfer Will. What was that? <laughs> I want a short scar lift with fat transfer just to hear a wee bit of that.
2: My ear my earpiece, I something something's gone wrong with it. I can't, okay.
1: I can't hear. I not, he can't hear you, Jill. He's not listening. <laughs> Okay, brilliant, guys. Wait, last question. Then. Um, what if you hate the results of a facelift? Do you have any way to show clients what the results may be before going for it? So, would that be something? Could that three D scan that you guys have got be used? We can do that. Um, I haven't got,
0: I haven't done enough in it with that to be able to show somebody realistically and put my hand in heart and say, I think you're going to look like that afterwards.
2: I, I, I have I've got a suggestion as a cheap way of having a a, a look of what how you might look after a facelift and that is to lie down on your back uh looking up and get somebody to take a photograph of your face.
0: Well that's why we all take photographs. <laughs> yeah, I know but we all do that anyway, well.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. But that 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 gives you an impression of what facelift uh, okay. outcomes can be. Interesting,
1: okay, and and, and obviously and
2: looking at photographs of uh, um previous patients that's another, yeah, good way of seeing.
1: And you've got a private face group for cosmetic care which will post underneath us as well. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to growing that was, that. was probably
0: one of the last of the groups that we introduced, and unfortunately, we introduced it right as COVID happened. So, mm. um, but what I would also say as well, where is our breast patients and our tummy tuck patients are very very vocal and very open to showing afters and things like that there seems to be this thing with faces that patients aren't as confident in doing that because i think it's a lot of women particularly the glasgow edinburgh divide the glasgow girls have shouted about a lot of things the edinburgh ladies keep it very very quiet and low-key you don't know who the school gates has had it whereas the Glasgow girls will turn up with a headband still around their head and be quite happy to say, "I did this. I went here." Yeah. Um, so I'm looking to encourage people to to communicate and to open a dialogue on on the the facial surgery group. I think it would be really really helpful.
1: Okay, okay, brilliant, well, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through all those different procedures. It is there. Really interesting the breadth of what is available non-surgically and surgically, you know, should that be something that you are looking into. So that's just been really interesting. Thank you so much for having us. And we'll be back at another point to talk about other F's, but we'll get to that later. Um... Well, you will <laughs> no that was brilliant. Thank you again for your time.
2: Great. No problem. We'll be put
1: on our YouTube channel and our podcast as well so people can can watch in the replay. Okay. Thanks, Laura. You
2: Fantastic. have a nice thanks Laura.
1: We'll hear from you soon. Bye guys.
2: Bye.